First, uh, some housekeeping. Roger Evans this morning gave a great talk about uh, speechwriters and their disappointments. I've asked him to also offer some guidance on how to deal with disappointing speechwriters right after my talk. <laughs> and I advise you to sign up quickly because before you know it, the session will be fully booked. <laughs> Fellow speechwriters, the last time I spoke about writing speeches was when I left the Dutch Foreign Office after four years of being a speechwriter there. At the time when I was preparing my talk to my soon-to-be ex-colleagues, the first word that sprang to mind was toilet. This may sound a bit old, so let me try to explain. People working at the Dutch Foreign Office are basically divided into two groups, diplomats and, well, the others. <laughs> the diplomats are the chosen ones recruited in their 20s, hopping from one post to another, destined for greatness, like being an ambassador to, let's say, United Kingdom. The others are hired to do one job and one job only, and often on a fixed-term contract. As a speechwriter, no surprise, I was a proud member of the others. <laughs> now, diplomats had an expression for people like me. We were the ones who sneaked in through the toilet window. <laughs> it's true, it's not a lie. <laughs> Toilets at the ministry, uh, an office building with a Stalinist appeal, did not actually have windows. <laughs> but on a metaphorical level, the message was like, quite clear. You're not one of us, buddy. You don't belong here. With this in mind, I started to write my farewell talk. And soon I discovered that the, the toilet metaphor offered some fresh insight into my work. So what I told my soon-to-be ex-colleagues was that writing speeches at the Foreign Office was like being a toilet attendant. You make things look tip-top, then others do their needs. <laughs> there you go. And you get to clean up after them. And all of this, of course, was some lousy pocket change. <laughs> I hear the sounds all too familiar to you. Now, I did not expand on it at the time, but the idea never really left me. The similarities between speechwriters and bathroom attendants or toilet attendants, I don't mind. Martin Shovel said it, I would use toilet rather than bathroom because bathroom is a euphemism, isn't it? So let's say toilet. The similarities between speechwriters and, and toilet attendants are striking. And I don't mean that both have shitty jobs, thank you very much. <laughs> what I do mean is that both roles are essentially about striking a balance. A balance between self-effacement, or modesty, and self-awareness, or pride. Both are about adopting a subordinate position and, at the same time, being in control. Customers are king, no doubt, but you cannot allow them to wipe their butts with you. <laughs> this balancing act is not easy. At the Foreign Office, I've seen highly valued speechwriters walk the tightrope and fall. Roughly speaking, you could divide them into two categories, those who exploded and those who imploded. <laughs> In the first category were the speechwriters who couldn't stand the constant interference of the bureaucrats they had to work with and the unreasonable demands of the politicians they had to work for. Eventually, they exploded and left or were kindly asked to leave. <laughs> In the second category were those who took the modesty concept a bit too far and slowly but surely turned into a punching bag of some sort. Eventually they imploded and were suspended from their duty. 
It took me four years, but I ended up in the first category. And I still vividly remember the day I decided to resign from the Foreign Office. I went on a business trip that day in the slipstream of the minister I worked for at the time. The Excellency was wheeling a giant suitcase gently through the VIP area of Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam until a staircase appeared. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, hold on. The minister immediately dropped the suitcase in front of me and asked, would you mind carrying this down, Frank? Thank you. (laughs) And without waiting for my answer, the minister started walking down the stairs, leaving leaving me with the question how to respond. Today, I could think of a million ways to counter this obvious attempt to humiliate me. But at the time, I saw only one way out of the precarious position I found myself in, and that was the use of irony. So I answered in the sweetest of voices, of course, minister, I'm here to serve you, and carried the suitcase down the stairs. But irony, as the Polish-American poet Czeslaw Milos has said, is the glory of slaves. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess nobody wants to be a slave. So there in the VIP area of Schiphol Airport, I decided it was time to take off. Now, the suitcase incident obviously did not cause my resignation. It was merely a culmination point. The Excellency had driven me nuts. (laughs) The minister insisted that speeches needed more substance, but never quite revealed substance about what exactly. (laughs) One day the minister said that my sentences were too long, the next day that they were too short. The minister wanted a quote from a woman, in her speeches, but stupid me, not a quote from that woman. (laughs) Not to mention the tiresome language battles with bureaucrats in a minister's entourage. They just love words like mitigation, adaptation and integration, and I didn't. If the Minister for Development Corporation wanted to stress in a speech that having decent toilets, there it is again, and showers is critical to improving the lives of the poor, The bureaucrats insisted that the only right word for this was sanitation. At a certain point, wars weren't even wars anymore. They were challenges in areas of conflict. It's true. In a book by John York, to whom stalk at this conference tomorrow I very much look forward to, I found this quote by the Irish poet W.B. Yeats, also quoted by Roger this morning. Out of the quarrel with others we make rhetoric, out of the quarrels, quarrel with ourselves, we make poetry. I suppose Yeats had something quite different in mind when he wrote this. But at the Foreign Office, I really did make rhetoric out of the quarrel with others. Now, this is probably the point where I'm expected to say that all of this is behind me now. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm a newborn speechwriter. But I'm not so sure about that. Not so sure, not quite so sure. I still haven't figured out exactly how to serve without being servile, and I doubt I ever will. What I am sure about, though, is that I would recommend being a speechwriter to almost anyone. Maybe not with the Dutch Foreign Office, and maybe only for a few years, but still, I would recommend it. And I would recommend it for exactly the same reason I would warn against too high expectations. And this reason is that writing speeches is about striking that balance between self-effacement or modesty on the one hand, and self-awareness or pride on the other. Just think about it. We live in an era which is very much about self-promotion. On Facebook, 
on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and for some of us, on Tinder. <laughs> I'm actually linked with someone who's making a living from telling people how to present themselves online. I think she makes a good living out of it. At the very least, you need a shiny picture, an impressive job title, and a proper amount of friends, followers, and contacts. This self-promotion thing, described by the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte as the obese self, has gotten a bit out of hand, if you ask me. To illustrate this, please allow me to give you two examples. And I know about the rule of three, but since we're among speechwriters here and nobody's actually fooled by this easy rhetoric, let's not bother. <laughs> the first example is an American fugitive called Donald Chip Pugh. This guy sent a selfie to the police in Ohio because he did not like the mugshot in his arrest warrant. <laughs> I think they just did me wrong, man, Chip. <laughs> Chip told an Ohio radio station, they put a picture out that made me look like I was a Thundercat or James Brown on the run. I can't do that. The host of the radio show tried to help the police by asking Chip where he was. Right now, replied Chip, I'm on the radio. I'm on the radio. <laughs> Which is, if you ask me, a pretty smart answer. But Chip apparently wasn't smart enough to understand that sharing a shiny picture of himself would make it easier for the police to actually find him. <laughs> so soon after his selfie had become a hit on Facebook, the police was able to arrest him. And after his arrest, the police, the police put out a third picture of Chip, writing, how's this photo, Donald Pugh? Hashtag, thanks for the selfie. <laughs> the second example of self-promotion getting a bit out of hand is this British chap called Ben Innes. He had his picture taken with the hijacker of the airplane he was on. We all probably remember the dopey grin on his face when, when the picture was taken. It was recently. I thought, why not? If the guy blows us all up, it won't matter anyway, Ben <laughs> said in an interview after his release from the airplane. <laughs> it has to be the best selfie ever. <laughs> now, family members praised the photo too. One of his relatives tweeted afterwards that only Ben could get a selfie, hashtag proud. <laughs> his mother, by the way, argued that since the stewardess had taken the picture, it technically wasn't a selfie. <laughs> now, if you write speeches for politicians, business leaders, or other dignitaries, there is no hashtag proud. We normally don't get to promote our work on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, let alone on Tinder. <laughs> our work is not about our ideas, our opinions, our personality. Our work is at the service of the ideas, the opinions, and the personalities of others. This, of course, does not imply that we can do without ideas, opinions, or a personality of our own. Without these, we can't help our speakers develop a good speech. In the best of worlds, speechwriters lead from behind and let others take the credit. So, in a time where self-promotion is almost epidemic, writing speeches for politicians, business people, and other leaders can be a great antidote. Sometimes you do get the credits, though. I was praised once on Twitter for a speech a minister I worked for had given. The truth was that the minister had written this one himself. 
But I decided to say thank you anyway. <laughs> Let's face it, there's a limit to being modest. Fellow speechwriters, we're in this beautiful place today called Lady Margaret Hall, a college which is, as its slogan goes, changing lives since 1879. Now, that's a big achievement, changing lives. But some of us on this planet aim even higher. Recently, a 400-page compilation of Vladimir Putin's most notable speeches was published <laughs> under the unassuming title, Words That Changed the World. <laughs> there you go, talking about propaganda. I can assure you, as a speechwriter at the Dutch Foreign Office, my words did not change the world. <laughs> there is this saying of British diplomats about their counterparts from the Netherlands. Ah, the Dutch, always right, never relevant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose that's by and large correct, at least for the part about being irrelevant. <coughs> the only consolation we have is that when a Brexit would occur, British diplomats will be increasingly irrelevant themselves. <coughs> Either way, if I had to come up with a title for a compilation of speeches I've written at the Foreign Office, which will never happen, <laughs> it would probably be a mix of Putin's book title and the slogan of Lady Margaret Hall. Words that changed one life, and one life only. Because I may not be a newborn speechwriter after the airport incident, writing speeches, of course, has taught me one valuable lesson. This lesson is that true humility, in the words of the British writer C.S. Lewis, is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Being a speechwriter turns out to be a great way of trying to achieve just that. And I would think so is being a toilet attendant. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.